Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back. Right, this week's guest is a special one. Katie Warriner is a sports psychologist who has worked with a dazzling array of top sports people, including many of my previous guests, from the likes of Headspace founder Andy Puddicombe through to the legendary Olympic gold medal winning hockey team of 2016, including Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh, Alex Danson and Danny Kerry, as well as Lawrence Halstead of the True Athlete Project. All of them say that Katie is an extraordinary psychologist. And after speaking to her, it is very clear why Katie really cares about people, life and the planet. The theme of this episode is about are you coming from a place of love or fear? So are you trying to achieve success to become somebody, for example? In other words, from a place of fear and lack. Or are you doing what you're doing as an expression of love and exploration? We discuss how the self-improvement path is ultimately a recognition that you were fine all along. And Katie questions the whole narrative of what success is and why achievement in and of itself isn't that impressive. It's about asking yourself, how are you going to use that to contribute to the well-being of others and the world? And it won't surprise you on that basis to hear that Katie joined forces with someone who has used his platform to do exactly that, Marcus Rashford. She helped write his book, You Are a Champion. I really enjoyed chatting to Katie and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. And if you do, please, can you go ahead and share it? Anyway, here is Katie Warriner. Katie, what a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Listen, I'm just going to have a quick chuckle. I think it's always a good sign when you have a natter for half an hour before you start recording. And you and I have just done that. So uh, it's always a nice bit of preamble. It is a, a real pleasure to have you on, Katie. You have come highly recommended by a number of my guests. And I want to start by asking, what do you like at handling praise <laughs> it's something I've had some coaching on and I find myself in moments of real hypocrisy when I catch someone I'm working with or a friend or family member doing something great or I want to express some love for them and they bat it back and I get really annoyed with them and then I've realized that I am also doing the same thing so I am practicing accepting it with grace graciousness is that the right Gracious. word that is so I'm dying okay. inside right now but thank you <laughs> so I've heard that you are, quote, an extraordinary psychologist by people I hold in very high regard who are doing really important and special things within the sporting sphere. Why would they say that about you? What makes you an extraordinary psychologist? Extraordinarily random or? (laughs) (laughs) In a good way. 
definitely in a good way. <laughs> um, I look everything. I, I feel like this might sound a bit tedious to say, but I truly mean it. Everything is a collaboration. So anything that emerges from work I may do with someone is a collaboration that they are equally, if not more so, responsible for. So I think if anything, I have, I just feel so blessed to have found a way of working that is just true to me and I believe so much in in what I do and I feel genuinely humbled to to be in the conversations that I'm in whether it's with a eight-year-old at school or an Olympic champion or a business leader trying to restructure it it's just people trying to do good stuff in the world and so I just I think I bring just a very intrinsic motivation to it I've had some incredible mentors over the years uh, who I wouldn't be able to sort of think and engage without their support but yeah just everything everything is a collaboration my one of my mantras in life is trust the process so if I feel stuck with someone I just just try to be present and trust that together we'll figure this out brilliant answer (laughs) that was excellent and shows why you are held in such high esteem if you ask me and um I really like what you said there about collaboration and and I think we'll come back to that but I also wanted to pay homage to your blurb writing skills because on your website, it says from the sports field to the boardroom, from the helicopter pad to the operating theater. I thought, crikey, that is a beautifully constructed sentence. So I wanted to say well done for that. I can't take credit for it. My husband wrote that. He's, I think it's way easier to write, you know, positively about someone other than yourself. So um, he wrote that. (laughs) That that is brilliant. (laughs) Now, what would you say, Katie, you've touched already on collaboration, So you have worked with some really fascinating people, some really highly successful people through to people in schools, through to us, quote unquote, normal folk. Um, (laughs) What would you say is the core philosophy, if you like, that you try and bring to your work? Wow, what a question. Um, I think it's around a belief in what's possible and a love of life and I don't entirely know where it comes from but a real appreciation for the finiteness of life that you know as far as I know we've not got a spare (laughs) and as far as I know for now we've only got this one life here and what a privilege what an opportunity to make the most of it to make a difference to people's lives so at the heart of everything that I think I do whether it's at work or in life is is just a love of people and a love of adventure and seeing what's possible and that I genuinely feel as lit up by a team trying to win a premiership as by a 15 year old who's struggling to ask someone out on a date or whatever it might be it's just people and people fascinate me so the very first bit of kind of professional development I had after university was going on a coaching skills course so like learning how to listen properly Mm. and how to ask questions that allow people to think more deeply about things. So I'm not quite of the belief that, you know, everyone can do everything, um, but everyone can grow and develop. And there's way more resources within someone than perhaps our conscious minds allow us to recognize. So of all the things I've learned about over the years from clinical psychology, performance psychology, neuroscience, it's actually the core coaching skills of asking questions genuinely and listening really deeply that I hold most dear Another lovely answer. So altruism and and a we over me attitude is something yeah. that is important in your work then. Yeah, I think so. And, ju- and just, yeah, that sense of life being precious. There's a psychologist, Susan David, who she's a beautiful way with words. And I think she once said, life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. And I can yeah. really relate with that. I mean, especially as a, as a, a relatively new mom now, but a two-year-old and I love her so much it hurts and I, I have to be willing to experience the the pain of like what if something were to happen to her is she happy is she connecting mm. with people uh, with that I can't love someone as much as that without that sort of fear coming in so um gosh I have no idea what I'm talking about right now what was the question no, no, that, the, <laughs> I, I, can't even, I can't even remember uh, I think it was we weaving me and, and the sort yeah. of altruistic elements of your approach and you mentioned mm. your daughter and um I think children of that age are fascinating. And, and actually, I, I want to speak a little bit about children of roughly that age a little bit later, mm. I think. But you work with CEOs, 
you've worked with Olympic champions, education leaders, world record holders, etc. All very successful people. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, is it fair to say you're interested really in challenging the idea of what success is? Because it's very normal for us to put people like that, like your CEOs, Olympic champions, etc., on a pedestal mm. and be like, right, these people are special. They're different. Yeah. Let's aspire to be like them. They need to be treated with deference. You know, we're not as good as them. All that narrative, right? And you increasingly, it seems to me, want to challenge that idea of success. Yeah, that's interesting. You've noticed that. I think you're right. I think because to me, it's not impressive if you have run a business that turns over millions and billions of dollars or pounds or, or stood on Olympic podium. It's not inherently impressive to do something like that. I'm interested in what you want to do with that. Like what's your, mm. if you've got a platform, how do you want to use it to make a difference in the world or mm. what have you overcome to be there? So inherent in achievement in and of itself is not interesting to me. It's the journey there. It's who you become along the way. It's Mm. who you're able to reach out to or touch through that achievement that infuses it with meaning. Um, And also, as many of us have, I've just I've seen so many people that have achieved so many objectively impressive things and been Mm. so utterly miserable and unfulfilled by them because perhaps the original motivation wasn't quite in in the direction that it needed to be. And so I just have that ambitious hope for people to be as fully contented and you know, exploring their potential in the fullest sense rather than limited definitions of what success really looks like. Yeah. So, well, definitely when I started out working in this field, I, I had this sort of, I had lots of motivations, but one of them was a curiosity of like, could I help someone win an Olympic gold medal? And I, I realized quite quickly that that wasn't really the right question. It was, you know, kind of how can you connect with people? What can you unlock in them? And, yeah. and then if they happen to put their best performance down on the day and it happens to be the best, then it's almost it's almost like a humility of like, that's not even anything that we can take responsibility for. That's just a, oh, yeah. a really complex scenario that unfolded there. I love that you use the word humility. I think that's so mm-hmm. important because I think for me, the people I enjoy talking to or let's turn that around, the people I don't necessarily enjoy or want to talk to are the ones who achieve certain things and then think that it or believe. And in a way, you can't blame them because there is a narrative that forms around people like that in a societal point of view, but believe that success, personal glory makes them special. And I think for me, the most impressive people are, are the ones who perhaps have achieved something incredible, but then see through the idea that that makes them any more important than anyone else, you know? And I think um, that kind of points to what we're talking about. And you spoke about um, success not being something that impresses you. Okay, what are you going to do with that? So it's mm. it's not about personal glory, but serving something bigger than yourself, essentially. Yeah, that's what will give it meaning. And uh, Sorry, just jumping back to when you're talking about humility, there was this incredible athlete that I used to work with called Alex Davis is an England sevens um, player who's I think yes. captain of the team nowadays and I think it's a C.S. Lewis quote but he used to say it all the time and he was just so passionate about this perspective that humility isn't thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less you know we talked a lot with that team about the love they had of the game they love they had for each other the curiosity of what we can create through competition that pressure is welcomed because it allows us to explore the outer edges of our potential and you know that um I don't know if it's actually accurate or not but I love the concept that competition comes from the latin compare yes. or to search together so you know we, yeah. the opposition is not our adversary they are they're a friend alongside and together we're exploring what's possible and yeah sure we want to try and win but let's keep that in perspective as to why and how and what we're going to do with it Absolutely. Yes. What can we create together? And I always go back to the Federer Nadal final of 2008. It was the masterpiece. Forget the Rafa one, even though well done, Rafa. But it is crazy because, and I listened to your podcast recently with Kath Bishop, which I loved. And you know, because she's talking about like, she gets invited to speak to people, to schools or businesses because she has an Olympic medal around her neck. And if she'd gone 0.1 slower and hadn't, yeah. And she suddenly got less to contribute. And that's just, I think everyone could connect to that being completely ridiculous. And yet that is the way the world works. Um, and I just, yeah. I'd love to understand that a bit better, like how well, we change well, that narrative. I think it will just change itself over hmm. time, probably not in our lifetimes, but uh, 
I get the sense that there is a bit of a movement in that direction. I mean, something you said earlier about how, you know, people who've achieved quote unquote great things. So personal mm. glories and yet are miserable as a result of it. So I did a talk yesterday for a company and they did a bit of a Q&A at the end. And I was sharing some of the lessons I've learned from the podcast. And someone said, oh, how can I enjoy my achievements for longer? And how can they be more sustainable? And I'm like, well, they can't because by their very nature, they're transitory. And yeah. and Stevie Ward, a guy I spoke to recently, had a very nice analogy, which is it's like chasing the uh, horizon. It doesn't matter how fast you run. It's always going to stay just out of reach. And the horizon always, yeah. always moves. And then just a quick ad, this is a bit of a bugbear of mine. And people talk about self-esteem, you know, mm. and, and that quote of your, the, the seventh chap, Alex, who I, I've seen you post about him a few times and thinking about yourself less. So mm. for me, self-esteem is the story of me. So yeah. oh, I'm good or I'm bad, let's say. They're two sides of the same coin, really. And we all know someone who's got high self-esteem who perhaps doesn't warrant it and vice versa. So better, yeah. to, I think, just to have a, a sense of, of self-acceptance, like you say, yeah. think of yeah. your selfless and, and you're no better or worse than anyone else. You know, it's all just narratives and ones that we should I, take I, with a bit of a pinch of salt. Yeah. And I actually have been thinking about that a bit recently around the self-esteem angle and how it, it's almost like inherently comparative. So I have to yes. compare myself to someone else. Am I good enough? Mm. And mm. Whereas self-acceptance, as you said, or self-compassion as well, just mm. a, an attitude of kindness to yourself, a willingness to accept what's present in this moment. And it's actually only really in becoming a mum. When I look at Ilo and it's like, I have sat with so many business leaders, coaches, athletes over the years who are asking themselves, am I good enough? Huh. And I've never really, I've never really seen it so clearly as when I look at Ilo and I think it's just not even a question. No, like there is not. just love. And yeah. now what do you want to go and do with your life? Whereas so many of the high performers that I've worked with who, you know, on the surface have achieved amazing things and, you know, on social media will will tell a certain story about their achievements. But underneath it is that sense of, am I good enough? I'm trying to yeah. be good enough. Yeah. And, then, and then when you get into those sort of like curious questions, like, okay, so it's a silly example, but there's a, there's a boat, there's only two people can you rescue. One's a normal human being and the other's an Olympic medalist. Are you going to save the Olympic medalist? Because they have, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. And when you go to make friends with people, you think, I'm going to call my friend up now. You look through your phone book and think, oh, no, he finished fourth. No, I don't want to talk to him. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was like, it's just not how we live our life. No, and yet no. so many people are so gripped by that sense and I've I've experienced it as well and yeah I think the more we can talk about this then the more we normalize it and find a different way of of connecting yes so I know you're a fan of acceptance and commitment therapy and mm. Russ Harris gives quite a nice example of if you go to a funeral it's not like people go well they did this and they earned this amount of money and they yeah. it's like no what were they like and like you say, you know, we don't choose that. If you do choose your friends on account of what they've done, I mean, that officially makes you, uh, what is it? Uh, a uh, plonker. A plonker. Yeah, we'll stick with plonker. I like that. <laughs> and and uh, just to use your, you were talking about your um, daughter, Isla, lovely name, mm. by the way. And um, so the theme of our conversation, this idea of are you coming from a place of love or are you coming from a place of fear? So in a sporting sense, it could be, or any success pursuing pursuits, right? Are you trying to win something to prove something? When I win this, then I will be okay as a person. Yeah. And you talk about Isla, it's just so obvious that she doesn't need to do anything but to be totally lovable. And to mm. like, there's nothing she could do to, mm. uh, to make herself more lovable or aggrandize herself or anything like that yeah. and as a child of that age it's so plain and obvious and actually that's partly why people love small children and yeah. animals as well because there is none of this narrative oh i need to prove myself and then as we get older we start to think okay well there's something wrong with me and i'm too tall i'm not clever enough you know my nose <laughs> is a bit nose is a bit wonky or whatever it may be you know like the list is is mm. endless and we start buying into that narrative and mm. then it's like okay no now I have to prove myself but underneath it all the whole time is that two-year-old part of us that yeah. has been fine all along it was always fine and it's about, yeah. about recognizing that 
innate well-being that's already there you've got nothing to prove does that resonate with you totally and I, I've, I've sat with athletes and and asked them questions like if they're experiencing real anxiety before a major event um, or they're they're really hand, they're struggling with mistakes for example in game because it, it's all just so anxiety provoking and when you bottle it down to or whittle it down to you know do the people that matter to you will they love you more or less if you win this game and they start smiling there's this this like smiling of like <laughs> no and some people will say yeah they might be happier it's like yeah they'll be happier because they think it really matters to you but now list me three things in life that you care about that are important to you and notice how they won't be affected by the result of this game this tournament this whatever it might be and um Part of it, I don't, it's not something I have deep expertise in, Simon. I actually think you will have way more to kind of build on in this next point because I, I thought we might end up somewhere here at some point in our conversation. Have you ever heard of this guy? I'm just reading some notes here, Dr. Ali Binazir. So I don't know much about him, but I just want to read you this really short bit. So he Go talks about the odds of you being alive basically are about oh, yeah. zero. So he says, imagine there was one life preserver. I don't even know what that is, but let's go with it. One life preserver (laughs) thrown somewhere in some ocean, and there is exactly one turtle in all of those oceans swimming underwater somewhere. The probability that you came about and exist today is the same as that turtle sticking its head out of the water in the middle of that life preserver on one try. And it's a great visual because you're like, I can imagine all the oceans in the world and one turtle swimming around and dropping something randomly. And that's the chances of you being you. And he, I can't even say the number. He says, the probability of you existing at all comes out in one in 10, followed (laughs) by two, six, eight, five million zeros. (laughs) And when you answer them, yeah, yeah, it's a long (laughs) shot. (laughs) Cheers, mum and dad. Um, When you think about that, like, yeah. So then you come from a point of view of love of exploration. So I'm enough as I am. And I want to go and see what's possible with this team and this tournament. And I want to try and inspire people. So you're coming Mm. from a point of abundance and, and yeah, yeah, of of unconditional value. And my experiences in sport, that is really rare, but it is achievable. So through sport, actually, you can heal some of those wounds that people have picked up through their early years in life. And, um, sport becomes a vehicle for that healing, which wasn't what I learned about when I went to uni, let's just say. (laughs) No, I think so many people, particularly the people I speak to, a lot of whom have retired from sport, Mm. go in thinking one thing and come out thinking something completely different. I mean, I suppose that is actually the nature of life. It's what is it? You live it forwards and understand it backwards. That's Um, a nice thing. And that's why I just think, you know, take what we think with a pinch of salt. It's like something bad quote unquote happens and then 10 15 years down the track it's like thank god that happened like we just yeah. don't know something that strikes me about you katie listening to you talk is the appreciation and awe that you have just for life and for being alive the miracle of existence essentially mm. have you always been like that well i'm not sure actually from an early age i i, I think a lot of beliefs and mindset attitude were shaped through some suffering actually so when I was younger I was uh, in the GB artistic gymnastics team and I went into the sport loving it and it was sort of my first ever you know that was my first love was artistic gymnastics and just moving your body in space and the feeling of sticking a a dismount off the beam and so on but sort of 10 or so years later I I retired from the sport at the grand old age of 16 (laughs) which makes me laugh every time I think (laughs) about it and I hated it I hated it I hated I had a terrible relationship with my coach I had a really felt sense of falling short of my potential and I had this like intrinsic desire to be there for others in the way that perhaps there, there wasn't back then psychology wasn't really a thing coaching was much more traditional not not so relational as it is nowadays so I wanted to try and prevent that suffering for other, from others it doesn't mean that everyone I work with wins an Olympic gold medal it just means that I want to try and help them explore their full potential and so there's that that sort of really wholehearted approach that just it chose me <laughs> rather than I chose mm. it um so I th- yeah, I think, and I think actually, you know, in, in sort of darker moments, when you stop and think about the meaning of life, I hope it's not. I hope it isn't too sort of. No, I like it. I like, let's go deep. Let's go deep. Pull me back let's out if on. it is. No, you no. Know, when you actually stop and think about it, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, what, yeah. what is this all about? Because 
there are so many people, you know, one in four with mental health struggles, that mm. one in 10 children in, in classrooms in the UK now have parents that are divorced. Like there's so much kind of struggle and difficulty and there are five times as many suicides as as deaths on the road last year. Mm. It, how do we make sense of this and what are we doing? And if there were aliens looking in on us, they would see us running around, you know, that Dalai Lama quote, quote, like being really, really busy to earn lots of money to spend on things we don't really need and then yeah. getting really unhealthy in the process and then having to pay lots for medical support to get healthy yeah. again. And it just, yeah. it, the human condition kind of blows my mind a bit sometimes. And obviously I'm part yeah. of that. So then I have to make sense of it. So then we have to pull back out and think there's just another way to to see and feel this. Gosh, I hope God, this no. is not a normal conversation that I have. So um, <laughs> that's no, okay. I, listen, I know, but I, I, I love it. And I think um, it's a really important point, like the Dalai Lama pointed to, this, this constant striving mm. and the cost that it comes at. It's a really important question. Just in terms of your gymnastics career, because so you said it was your first love. And you mm. spoke about the, the feeling of, of dismantling for, or, <laughs> you know, doing this move, whatever it may have been. And that's what you love, that feeling. And then at the age of 16, you hated it. And do you think you were, actually, the first thing I'd want to say is that everyone gets into, in my opinion, sports, generally speaking, unless they're pushed in by pushy parents, generally speaking, people get into sport because they love playing it. And it sounded like you with gymnastics, it was just the yeah. joy of doing it for its own sake. So what happened then between then and when you hated it? Yeah, it um, it's, it's taken me a really long time to talk about it, actually. For the first sort of five or so years after retiring, I, like nobody that I was friends with at university, for example, would have known that I did gymnastics. I tried to get so far away from it. And actually through some kind of supervision and mentoring, I've come to be grateful for the suffering. It wasn't mm. a natural natural conclusion. Um, but I think at the heart of it was a relationship with my coach of of a lack of connection, a lack of understanding of not really being seen or heard and not being good enough actually and not fitting the model that he wanted me to fit so everything became so judgmental everything you know would be on the weighing scales three times in a session it's just oh. scientifically ridiculous and i'm 12 years old um and all of this happens behind closed doors because back then and perhaps still a bit today coaches tend to close doors and there are sometimes reasons for that so everything just became very outcome based and very the pursuit of perfection uh, as opposed to the exploration of joy mm. and what's sort of possible. I do wonder if it was sort of, did gymnastics sort of activate something that was already there, a kind of vulnerability of some sort? Because really, I'm really interested in what you just said there about people entering sport for for more intrinsic reasons and just the, the love of it. Because nine times out of ten, I, that's exactly what I find when, when I ask players, footballers, rugby players, whoever I'm working with, why did you get into sport in the first place? It was almost always around that just pure love. But yet mm. there's also this vulnerability and this fragility in some of the high performers that I work with where that sense of not being good enough actually originated before the age of about five or six and often from misunderstandings around how they were parented. So mm. I'm trying to work out <laughs> what, I, what I think about that. Have, so, you, yeah. heard of, have you heard of a... Uh, a woman called Amy Azicki, uh, who wrote a book called Skewed to the Right. No. So she argues that what it takes to be the very best in sport yeah. often is driven by a sense of disquiet, the lengths that you need to go to to be the very best. And I think yeah, you can apply cool. this to any field, really, whether it be mm. business or showbiz. The lengths you have to go to to get to the top of the pile there is often a sense of disquiet driving that. She actually said it's about not getting the parental gaze that we need to feel yeah. that sense of being okay in ourself. Yeah. You know, it challenges the narrative of sports stars are special people who we should admire. And actually it's a bit more like, mm. no, sports stars in many cases, not all, but in many cases, actually we should have a bit more empathy for what's driving them. Yeah, I've actually thought about writing a book called Driven by Dysfunction because I think that is a bit a like the music that you're just that you're describing there because it's not normal what they do and you know actually the pursuit of mastery a lot of it is boring because there's repetition mm. constant repetition there's obviously the setbacks there's the sense of constant fatigue of risk of injury of risk of deselection and it's not a normal choice 
So I think there's definitely a sort of school of thought that people wouldn't choose to do that if they had a, a sense that they were enough as they are. But actually, I really want to challenge that narrative because I think it, it is possible to do that. So it comes from more a mindset of, I'm not even questioning if I'm enough. It's just, I'm a human being and I'm going to try and challenge myself in this sport or in this way. Mm. I'm not sort yeah. of the driving force like we've been touching on a bit is, is love, not fear. But the the sort of, the, I guess it's kind of clinical psychology or attachment psychology from that early years work, it just the, the development that happens in the brain, prenatal and particularly then naught to three years is really fascinating to me. And the extent to which when we're born that our brain is such a work in progress you know, that we can, like a, a baby can feel emotions, but they can't really kind of communicate them in, in very no. nuanced ways. <laughs> they can just not. cry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, imagine being born able to feel emotions, but you have to wait to understand what you're actually feeling and to actually name your emotions and manage them. And then the neural connections can form that actually allow us to be able to express them and talk about them. And then you've got a parent that's you know, drastically sleep deprived and maybe has their own anxieties or maybe has a, you know, the way they were invariably has their own anxieties. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and so then they're, maybe they were parented in a, in a particular way where you've got a worldview that it's a tough old world and I can't be too soft with my kids. I need them to toughen up so that they can handle this world. And so they start to sort of suppress those early emotions. And, you know, as soon as baby cries, everyone says, Oh, don't cry which is sending a message that what you're doing is wrong. Whereas it's interesting. Burying. Yeah. Yeah. And so then that burying results in a felt sense over, over years or like, you know, tiny, tiny interactions that there's something wrong with me. And now I need to try and prove that actually I'm okay. And, oh, I know what, I'm going to go to the Olympics. And I'm not saying it's ever quite that straightforward, but I've really noticed something fascinating with Isla in literally the last sort of three or four months where she used to come out of nursery and she'd done some naff drawing, you know, it was just like a random scribble and part of me's like, Oh, let's keep it. And the other part of me's like, let's put it in the recycling. Um, And she used to come out and was not interested in what she'd done at all would just kind of give me a hug and we'd crack on. And she'd ask if I could give her a snack, like normal, normal protocol. And then in the last few months, she started coming out of nursery and presenting this to me as if it's like a manifestation of, of her value. Like, look what I've done, mummy. And I'm, and I'm Mm. the tech, the, the natural default is to say wow isn't that amazing because I want her to feel confident I want you know but the the sort of the psychologist or the slightly more thoughtful part of me will try to put it to one side and greet her like show her love and and value Mm. and acceptance and then talk in a more rational way about this naff painting (laughs) that she's given me but there's just something that's changed in the way she's now relating to her achievements and I can see why some people call that the fridge door syndrome. You know, the mum and dad then put it on the fridge door and send the yeah. implicit message to the child that you are great because of what you do. And then we act as if we're human doings, not human beings, and yeah. come to define ourselves through all those achievements. I can really see so clearly now how the misunderstandings unfold. To what degree do you think it's external and internal? So, for example, um, you obviously know far more about the brain than me, but let's say the what the, the prefrontal cortex and, and right. within that the ego and our self-image right. and our sense of self comes online let's say at around at around, well, at around between two and three I think it is yeah and starts to identify with things you know my toy um, yeah my, my painting uh, you <laughs> yeah. know my job and then then carries on forward so there's that internal thing and then there's the external of the way that society reinforces this you know um, let's say through through school you know it's always about okay you've got an exam and that'll get you to the next school and then you've got a few more you've got your mocks and then some other exams to set you up for some more exams to go to university to get a job to get the promotion to you know it's just never ending it's always moving forward so there's an element of conditioning and it's innate as well I don't know Mm. what you what you think of those the balance between those two fascinating I, I I have no clue um but I think it's an amazing question to be asking I I definitely from what what I've studied and what I've kind of picked up from mentors over the years that like you're saying by the age of two or three the young person the young child has basically formed templates around three key things like am I lovable do I matter can others mm. be trusted is it safe to open up can I rely on others to help me in this world and then the third one is is the world a safe place to go and explore or is it a scary place where I need to be on my guard. And so it it blows my mind that those three 
kind of core templates, self, others in the world are, are essentially formed at such a young age. And when the brain is so incomplete, it's not just a mini mm. adult brain, it's an incomplete brain. It's more emotional, you know, more limbic system driven rather mm. than prefrontal cortex, which doesn't come online until, you know, much, much later. So the ability to answer those fundamental questions in a in a wise manner is really limited. <laughs> I mean, mm. you know, like Isla will say, like, oh, the moon's really high in the sky, let's get Pops' ladder. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> part of me is like, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. And that also freaks me out that she's forming views on herself, other people in the world that will then act as a template. You know, it's uh. not it's not fixed, but it's very, very powerful. Um, and so, that yeah, that just seems like this brain we've been given is kind of tricky if we actually want to really be happy, present, and explore the world fully. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, so we have these templates and it was really interesting what you said there about those those three things and they get laid down so early and they can then often drive our behavior actually for the rest of our lifetime if we're yeah. not, you know if we don't introspect yeah. i saw you wrote an, an article i'm pretty sure along the lines of the whole it's, it's okay not to be okay the the mental health conversation but actually and actually this came up when i was chatting to amy it's moving that forward a little bit to be like okay it's okay to do the work to be yes, okay right because we do get these templates laid down but we also have metacognition or meta awareness mm. or meta consciousness in that we can be aware of our patterns of thinking now a lot of this obviously is going on unconsciously and therefore you mm-hmm. you have to do some digging and but we are able to stop identifying or to hold lightly or even let go yeah. of these templates yeah. but it takes some sort of awareness and a bit of a bit of introspection and a bit inward looking and, and a bit of work often to mm. to get to that place yeah and by the way I was just so struck when you were saying about the it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to do the work to be okay and the irony being which I know you know you teach me a lot about is you were okay all along yes exactly <laughs> it's like a go full circle on it yeah 100% um, I'm just so struck by how easy it is to to kind of learn not the wrong thing but an unhelpful thing like I remember reading about you know if you imagine this scenario where um like a toddler's playing in the kitchen and um and like they run I, I don't know dad's cooking fish fingers and they yeah. they run over to the hot oven door and they're about to touch it and dad gets scared and is yelling out stop don't touch it and kind of roughly pushes the toddler back I mean this actually happened in our house with fish fingers <laughs> and in that moment the toddler in their immature way of being like experiences a real rift in that relationship that's kind of scary to them now mm. in an ideal world if we supported parents to really understand how to parent the dad maybe would naturally or because they've been supported to would repair that relationship but yeah. start by soothing the child would start by kind of saying I'm sorry you know like I'm sorry that I scared you and in that moment the toddler actually kind of stops thinking that it's all her fault or his yes. fault personalizes and it then, 
Yeah, and then you can do the teaching. It's just that the oven door was hot and the kid learns that oven doors are dangerous. But what happens more often than not, because parents are stressed, they're busy, they're anxious, they then feel bad for shouting. You kind of just gloss over it. And Mm. the child starts to put down the kind of template that I I am bad, not just that I did something wrong, but I am bad. I found it fascinating learning about the, the difference between shame and guilt in that space. So shame, I am bad, guilt, I did something wrong with the mm. latter when it's experienced in a healthy way is is positive because it motivates me to do something to correct it. I went against my values. I, you know, I really care about my friend, but I forgot her birthday. Like, I feel guilty about that. I'm going to put her birthday in my diary for next year um, or whatever yes. it might be. And I see that in athletes a lot as well. The, the shame. So if a team has lost, they don't want to make eye contact with you. They don't want to mm. um, go mm. and clap the fans. You know, when they come in on Monday morning, it's silent. There's almost a sense of like, and, you know, the leadership group might say, um, I can't speak up this week because I perform badly at the weekend, so I don't oh. deserve to have a voice. And it's just so, so unhealthy and so unhelpful yeah. and kind of trying to undo some of that so that we can just see things a little bit more cleanly. Yeah, you know that was, a couple of things popped in my head when you were mm. telling, telling that story about how we personalize things as, as children, because obviously as the ego is forming and it's you know, everything yeah. is either done to us or because yes. of us, essentially, yeah. right? And uh, actually, uh, my wife showed me, you know, one of those cartoon social media things, right? And basically, I had a, a psychologist or a therapist saying, don't worry, children are really resilient. And then the patient was replying, then why are all 30-year-old plus in therapy? And the psychologist <laughs> <laughs> and, the psych- and the therapist is then looking in the distance, having had their whole worldview shattered. Oh, God, yes, that's true. And... Just a quick example of that. So one of my guests taught me a really good game, which is we we try and play, which is the feelings game. And I'm sure mm. people have heard me talk about this before, where at night with uh, our little girl, we use, um, try and do something that makes you happy, sad, excited, worried, and then funny. And oh, we I talk about that. those. Honestly, it's mm. so good, right? Mm. And, and it, the, the power of it was illustrated by this one thing, which was a couple of years ago, I had to take my wife to hospital at about 10 at night. So we had to get, a little girl up you know out of bed so she'd been in bed a couple of hours and we drove to A&E and then we got my parents to come and pick her up and took her home right and the whole time she was in the back of the car and she was so stoic it was like wow like she is dealing with this incredibly well right and we didn't think anything of it and then fast forward literally 18 months two years and we're playing this game and, and we're talking, I can't remember what we were talking about. We were talking about something that happened that day or was going to happen. And out of nowhere, she suddenly goes, and then there was that time when we went to hospital and I was oh, terrified wow. and broke oh. down crying. And it was like, oh, oh my God, she had bottled this, this yeah. experience up. And yeah. by communicating with her about yeah. it, we'd an, a couple of years down the line, she'd been able to, to at least to some degree to process it rather yeah. than it being there is like potentially this this wound mm. um and so i just think you know communicating and talking ab- and about about feelings about taking responsibility like you say saying sorry soothing mm. um mm. being far more open than adults yeah. tend to think that, that, that they can be with children I, I think is so so important you know like so i talk with our little girl like probably two adults I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anything racy, but like, you know, like, but like, I'm, I'm very, I'm incredibly open with her, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. I think that's really important, you know. Simon, that's an amazing story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's really, really powerful. I'm also struck by, you know, when she initially, I guess if you were to go a bit, I mean, that's not, oh God, I've done it now. Jargonistic on. on it. <laughs> you know, like so it. She, she was sort of suppressing it at the time. Yeah. So suppression mm-hmm. as, a, as a way of, actually like rather than seeing that as a problem seeing that as that was the best she could do at the time with the skills she had available and that that was you know that made sense because there wasn't another way for her to process the emotion she had and what's so wonderful is like that game I've never heard of it before and um, I think that's really amazing to be able to then talk about it Um, and just how much how much like when you ask about those questions you're sending the implicit message it's okay to have all of these emotions yeah, you know, we don't. If we we have to embrace the difficult and funny emotions in order to experience life fully, and that implicit learning. So, if you think about like, I think we we're spending a bit of time talking about early childhood here. But when a when a mum or dad sort of mirrors their child's emotion, either with a facial expression or a tone of voice, if the kid's crying rather than sort of saying stop crying, we sort of say, oh, like 
you look like you're sad right now. And in that moment, the baby is learning that, that, you know, how to talk about their emotions. And then when you soothe them, which some people would say, oh, don't be so soft. But actually, the child then learns that other people care for them, that they're loved, that their emotions can be soothed. And then over time, that co-regulation, the child then learns to do that for themselves. So the path to resilience is actually through that love and through care and through things we might call soft. But actually, it's really that's the tough work because it's way easier yeah, yeah, to just yeah. say here's a chocolate or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or let's, yeah, let's not, not, not talk about that you know and I think being vulnerable is really key so um when it comes to that game it's not just her telling us those things and in fact the first time we played it she didn't want to play it until I shared what was making me feel happy and sad yeah. and stuff like that so yeah. Like I will always start or my wife will always start and then she will tell us what she feels. Oh, it's so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Which we were talking about, the theme is, um, you know, come from love or fear, right? So just yeah. returning to your gymnastic experience or, or bouncing off from that point, if you like, okay? Mm-hmm. So, and we've spoken about how the self-improvement journey ultimately is a recognition that we were fine all along. Okay, Uh, (laughs) that's the irony, right? Um, You know, what do you make then of of the having this understanding on the one hand that you're fine now, versus Mm. this pervasive idea that you know I've got to be a bit better than yesterday. I've always got to be striving. You know, how do you marry those two things? Yeah, because I actually, um, I think I might have shared this with you before, I actually, I got, I got asked to go on a podcast of someone that seemed like a really cool guy. And so I agreed to do it. And it's called Always Better Than Yesterday. And at the end of the podcast, he asked me, you know, what does this mean to you? And I, I just found myself being really honest, like, I actually really don't like it. <laughs> Sorry, I know, it's, I know it's the title of your podcast, but I don't know why you have to always be better than yesterday. Why don't we just be here now? And, mm. you know, like I'm, I'm a little bit of a hippie. I've got a little candle by my side here. Um, and mm. I'm really enjoying the flickering of the light of the flame yeah. as we're talking. And just, I don't need to see it flicker better tomorrow. I just, <laughs> I just yeah. enjoy it as it is. And the same for us too. So I think it, it's, I guess then when I unraveled it, it came back to again, the why, the why do you want to be better than yesterday? If it's because you're having fun exploring that crack on, mm. if it's because you feel like you're not enough as you are, let's talk about that because yeah. you will never get to that point of peace and contentment. You will do something great and feel nothing but relief. And frankly, that's not, that's not okay. So yeah, I think it, I think it comes back to the why. And it, it's interesting when we were, when we were sort of musing over this level of fear, I'm wondering if it, you know, both have to be present. It's like two sides of the coin that I have to be, you know, that I think it's a proverb where there is love, there is fear, or that where there is love, there is pain, I think is actually the proverb. It's all part mm. and parcel of the same thing. And a bit like yeah. I've seen you tweet before, which I've really loved about, you know, the metaphor of the sky, a bit like mm. the sky holds the impermanence of the rainbows or mm. the clouds or the gray day or the blue day. It doesn't say like, oh my God, you know, it's really, really dark today. It's just sort of, it just is that mm. sense of impermanence for us as well of, life is good life is bad life is up it's down it just is we are let's be together yeah yeah absolutely i think in sporting terms like on the one hand there's okay what is your why and, and you keep using the word exploration which i i love that mm. this this is something for example johnny wilkinson's really stumbled across throughout his um, yeah. hard journey that he's been on you know, after winning the world cup and feeling very empty the very next day but on the one hand, it's it's like, okay, are you striving to achieve sporting success because you believe that at the end of all the striving, the joy will come? Or is it an expression of the joy in the first place, which comes back yeah. to the reason we get into sport? And I think, so I'm a bit of a Roger Federer fan, right? Obviously, he's incredibly popular. And part mm-hmm. of that is down to his balletic play. Classy. Mm. Yeah, and classy and all that stuff. And, you know, he's very charming as well. But I think as well that the way he plays, and you only have to watch him practice, it's an ex- he just loves it. So he's out yeah. playing and experimenting and he's trying all these funny shots and doing all this stuff. And I think that's part of the reason why he resonates and brings so much joy to so many people because it's, yeah. it's an expression of his love for the sport. And I think that's yeah. when sport is at its most beautiful, as an expression of joy rather than a seeking to achieve joy in the future yeah or seeking of status 
I think tennis is actually, I'm useless at it. It's one of my little, I'm going to try and learn to play tennis this summer, actually, Um, (laughs) or at least pick up a racket. Uh, My husband works with a number of tennis players and just like watching them train. It's just fascinating the the flow that they they do experience. And I watch like the elite tennis players in absolute awe of their concentration that, you know, that how alone they are out there and just the the endurance. I mean, it just blows my mind, actually, the kind of, the psychology of tennis and the physicality of it and then the, and then there's that sense of almost like I don't know how to express it I've heard one of your guests express it beautifully where you're not even it's not even about you in that moment because you're no. not, almost not even consciously there and of course you yeah. are but I well, don't know if well, you remember you which that. guest it was so Rupert Spira I think it might have been him yeah, yeah so basically and so many of my guests I think a Goldie says winning a medal Olympic medal and you know thinking the whole career has been about this medal and then gets it and is like, actually, I'm I'm not as attached to it as I thought I would be. And I spoke to <laughs> Rupert about this and he's like, yeah, it's the medal is at best a symbol of the moment that yes. we love sport for, which is being lost in the moment when we are divested of this, that sense of me. And so yeah. it's the paradox of, on the one hand, we think that we're going to be happy, right? Going back to what you said at the start about the people who've achieved successful things on the surface but are miserable Mm. and there's an element of self-aggrandizement in that okay Mm. this accumulation the approval that's going to make this the the me more important right but actually weirdly then they don't feel any happier whereas you know you can't be in flow and not be happy like it is the characteristic of being in flow and another aspect of it is is that sense of me dropping away so the the paradox is we crave the dissolution of the self and of me (laughs) not the self-aggrandization of it and yet culturally (laughs) we're conditioned to think we want the latter and overlook the former which i think i've never heard that expressed so well i love that (laughs) (laughs) i never listen back to podcasts i'm on but i'm gonna have to listen back to that bit Oh, but I, re- I remember there's a brilliant, I loved working with him. There's this athlete called Tim Bailey, who um, was a Canoe Slalom athlete, Scottish guy, and competed at London, won gold and won the first Olympic gold in Canoe Slalom actually in 2012. And I remember him telling me that in the final run towards the back end of his course, the thought popped into his head. Um, I don't know if I can swear. Can I swear? Yeah, swear away. Yeah. Go on, go on. <laughs> the thought popped in, don't fuck it up now. Because <laughs> he was on a really good run and he was like, you know, we'd done loads of brain training and I was back yeah. then, I was quite kind of traditional sports psychic. But he, what was so brilliant was that like, he was so at peace with that thought that it just sort of rippled in, rippled yeah. out and he didn't yeah. respond to it in any way. He knew it wasn't his job to answer it or to act yeah. on it. Yeah, it yeah. was just something that popped in in the moment of his flow. And I, I love it because it's such a reminder that, you know, that athletes, yeah, we all have those random bizarre thoughts that pop up without our permission. The whole thoughts thing, that leads me onto something, which is, you know, I love that idea of this guy having the thought of, oh, I'm going to F this up. And, but, <laughs> but it not making it an issue of it. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. just allowing it to pass. Whereas, and I've mentioned this to you before about um, positive self-talk. So everyone's like, okay, yeah. you know, change a negative to a positive. It's like, we don't actually need to do that. As long as mm. you recognize a thought is just a thought, it doesn't matter what it says. Mm. A thought only becomes a problem when we make it a problem. The habitual thing is we tend to go with it without even noticing that we're going with it. That's why I think mindfulness or act is really helpful because you can unhook from these thoughts and be like, oh, hang on, there's that thought. Okay, let it go. You know, there's playful, like there's some playful things you can do. I, I found myself um, in a very playful moment with, for example, a rugby team, genuinely, and I got them to sing a, a difficult thought that they were having before a final at a world cup to the to the tune of happy birthday yeah. you know and then that you've got a, big, a group of big belly guys just laughing mm. and it's like yeah this thought is just a thing it's just a storyline yeah. shall we crack on <laughs> i'm gonna have to get you on again katie because there's so much i haven't asked you about but so obviously was trawling through your social media oh. picking <laughs> picking things out so you quoted owen eastwood who's been a guest on my podcast and you retweeted him saying that we need to talk less about high performance environments and more about healthy environments which I thought was a really important sentiment clearly you resonated with it because you retweeted it but how would you suggest we could do that yeah, I I loved, I thought, I mean, I'm so in awe of people that are able to express powerful concepts so succinctly, which I thought he did with that tweet. Um, 
I admire his work in general. I think I've seen so many environments that call themselves high performance, but are actually really unhealthy. And then that limits the performance that can be achieved and also limits the the enjoyment of the journey towards that performance. So I think for me, the key bit would be around that recognition of, of you being able to be you. There's so many mm. environments I've seen where you have to fit in, you have to be a certain way. And then in the act of trying to fit in, there is no opportunity to feel that sense of belonging that he talks about. Because if I'm having to act a certain way in order to fit in, it's not true belonging anyway. It's it's some kind of false situation. So in order to try and create a healthy environment, I, I'd love to see ones where it's okay to be human, where it's okay mm. to have good days and bad days, to talk about how you're feeling truly and not be judged by it, um, to be caring enough of each other that we're going to be honest rather than just tell people what they want to hear or just constantly kind of be in kind of attack or criticism, but really be kind of, radical radical candor as uh, oh yeah calls it. yeah I, I wanted to talk to you about radical candor because mm. uh, danny kerry spoke about radical man. candor and name checked <laughs> you as you really helped him with that but we'll have to save that for episode two i think yeah. just in terms of then the difference between a high performance and a healthy environment how common do you think it is in elite environments for people to feel like they can't be authentic to themselves they have to be a certain way is that a really common phenomenon radically common <laughs> yeah oh, really wow. common and I and I find yeah it saddens me and I, but I also think it's um it's part of what that sort of middle phase of life we were touching on this before I think you know if you look at like the most authentic souls in the world look to me to be the sort of two-year-olds and the 80-year-olds. So people yeah. at the beginning and towards <laughs> the end of their life, at the you know younger stage, they don't they don't know how to fake it or be a different you know, version of themselves or pretend to be something they're not. And at the end of your life, it looks to me like people can't be bothered <laughs> because you know my mum's in her late seventies and I hope well, I hope she's not at the end of her life. But she you know she just she's kind of she just is who she is and she doesn't care. Yeah. She's not trying to impress anyone. Um, in the same way that Isla is, whereas in the middle of life, we kind of get all a bit confused and a little bit lost. And it's yeah. in that middle phase of life where we're also trying to be high performing. So I'm not sure if it's necessarily that all high performance environments, so to speak, are unhealthy. I think there's just something about being human in this middle phase of life that's kind of tricky. And then when you put that in a, in a performance context, it gets magnified. Um do you yeah. see a shift though towards a, yes. towards more of a healthy environment? I mean, for example, yeah. the England squad under Gareth Southgate, it seemed that yeah. was far more healthy than previous incarnations. Absolutely. And, you know, what he stands for as a leader, my husband actually worked with him with the 21s. Um, he's a physiotherapist and obviously Gareth was was the, the manager there. And he's he's a deeply inspiring character to me. He's he's so authentic. He's so humble. He's genuinely trying to create an environment for those young men to thrive and to to develop as human beings and to use that platform to do good in the world. Um, I definitely think it's changing and I'm I'm so inspired to see that. And I think it's only going to go further and further I mean I've been in in elite sport teams that talk about love you know like we're doing today they talk about that's one of their values and I remember at the time the head coach was yeah it was a bit of a sharp intake of breath like really yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah. it was a great journalist actually Kate Rowan who wrote about it in the Guardian she wrote about this this culture of love and how different it was and um, I'm so proud of those guys for charting new territory and using different words to describe what they really cared about and I don't think sort of five ten years ago that would have been the case no and ironically in um coming from this connected loving place mm. the <laughs> the upshot and results has been dramatic so by yeah. focusing on being compassionate making a difference we versus me all the things we've we've touched on the end result has taken care of itself you could say yeah, I think it's been a leap of faith for some people that would think, look, if we've got all of this, you know, kind of connection, um, self-acceptance, as you've talked about, then what? why would we bother trying to achieve stuff in sport or life or medical fields, mm. etc.? And and I guess there's that sense of like, go soft or, you know, you're soft or go, what is it? Mm. Toughen up or go home. I can't remember yeah, the phrase. Yeah, yeah. Go hard you know or I mean? go home. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah something it. like that. Yeah, go yeah. hard or go home. Yeah, exactly. And actually it's like, 
that there's just such a that's, that's a really old-fashioned way of being now and that fear is you know fear can motivate whether it's fear of not being good enough fear of making mistakes of letting people yeah. down it can motivate but it's a really lazy motivation as Pippa Grange would say it's yeah it's very oh, yeah. short term and it, and it yeah, then it's means not sustainable no no and you're achieving success at a high cost and it doesn't have to be like that no. And something you touched on there about the person who talks about love and there was a sharp intake of breath. So obviously it's yeah. like, are you kidding me? Like yeah. something I don't like is when people espouse certain values and then mm-hmm. just act totally not in accordance with it. I imagine you've come across that a lot. A lot. And also just that that sense of, you know, if a team wants to set some values out where they want to stand for it, recognizing that it's then a choice and a skill to live true to that. And I've never seen it done better than with the women's hockey team leading oh. to their success in Rio. And, you know, Kate I and Helen Richardson and Alex Danson. Yeah, they're just oh, they are really yeah. wonderful people. Yeah. Um, I always try and find ways to bring them into the work I'm doing currently. Because they actually did have a goal, I think, to to win gold in London when they came out with a bronze. Yeah. It was much more outcome focused. And then they had evolved as a squad, as people, you know, and the mm. vision into Rio, be the difference, create history, inspire yeah. the future. It was so much about far more than them. And you see them continuing to live that now with Alex, with her academy, you know, with Kate yeah. and Helen, the work they do. Kate, I brought Kate in to speak to a group of rugby players a couple of years back, and she talked about this journey towards their culture and the, the healthiness of it and the values. And she recounted the values, not just the values, but the behaviours. And there were lots of them. And she she welled up in that moment and the group mm. welled up as well. Like, big you know six foot whatever incredibly strong Mm. um rugby guys that perhaps have a lot of armor on and and the whole room was so charged with emotion it was i was Mm. i loved it and she's just so authentic with it Mm. and and, yeah it's a really special example yeah uh, she talked about authenticity a lot when i interviewed her so i've been lucky enough to interview kate helen alex and danny i remember kate talking about the importance of authenticity. And then the other thing she spoke about, which we've touched on, is the need to have honest conversations and share mm-hmm. how you feel, you know, for better and for worse. Yeah. And there was the famous blood on the wall meeting where they all went in, you know, right, mm-hmm. no one's coming out of here without having got it off <laughs> their chest, you know. That honesty to me is like almost the greatest act of love or care. That's saying I am more interested in helping you be the best you can be than in my temporary comfort because right now this is going to be a really difficult conversation and yeah. I find myself having a lot of them with people in life perhaps work more so than life and it's always a gift when you're able to have that kind of real deep honesty and protect and still build the relationship rather than the feedback kind of break the relationship I used to think that you had to build up like an emotional bank account of trust almost before you could really challenge people when I was a much younger psychologist and more recently, I've come to think you, you actually don't need to do that as long as you are channeling a really authentic message and, you know, it's from your direct experience and so on. As long as you're doing it for the right reasons, you can go in pretty strong, pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that comes really... back to radical candor. What is it? Care personally, challenge directly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Clear is kind. There we go. The theme we were talking about is love or fear, right? And, and there's a lot mm-hmm. we haven't covered. So I'm making you commit here and now to part two, okay? <laughs> yeah, it would be a pleasure. Okay, good. But if you had to give your thoughts on coming from a place of love, the difference between coming from that place, an expression of love or a place of, of fear, you know, what does that look like? And, or how could someone make that shift if you were going to advise them? I think first we we start with a, a kind of lean into the facts of what the two motivating forces are like, you know, that sort of imagine yourself running through the woods away from a bear that's chasing you and the fear that would be running through you versus running through the woods towards your loved one who you haven't seen for a while and you can't wait. The same activity, it's running through a woods, but the driving force is very, very different and your experience of that moment was very different. So first of all, I think for us to talk more together about that fear does motivate, but just not as deeply or genuinely as love can, that that the emotion of love or the drive of love is more powerful, I think, than fear could ever oh, yeah. be. Yeah, that it's it encourages you to explore, take risks, step out of your comfort zone and and so on. So I think starting off with a sense of why might we want to talk about this and and do things a bit differently. And then the second point for me comes back to that sense of intrinsic value that you have just because you are here. Mm. as a human being on this planet and 
yes, a privilege to be born, but also a privilege for the world to have you here walking on this planet, you know, and what is it to be alive? So now from that point of enoughness, <laughs> from, yeah. you know, being enough as you are, what do you want to do in the world? What's the one true note you want to sing? What's the, yeah, yeah. You know, why are you here? And how can you use your time here to, to make a difference in the world so that then your pursuit of whatever it may be is coming from your heart, coming from that sense of love. Um, you don't have to do it. You want to do it. You don't need to do it. You choose to do it. And then the experience itself, as well as the outcome, will be so much, so much richer. Beautifully said. Katie, you have a, a way with words. So I think that's a, a lovely place to leave it. Katie, yes, listen, thank you so much indeed. It really has been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Katie Warriner. Like I said at the start, I really enjoyed chatting to Katie. It was one of those conversations where time flew by. I could easily have chatted for hours longer. Katie's wise, she's kind, and is definitely doing her bit to make the world a better place. And she's promised to come back for a part two, which I'm delighted about. If you want to check out her work, and I recommend you do, please check out her website and the Prime Clinic, both of which I've linked to in the show notes. Also, please, can you share this episode wherever you can, on WhatsApp, on social media, with a friend? It makes a big difference. Thank you to everyone who's done so already and continues to do so every week. I really appreciate you. My website is simonmundy.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter Monday on Monday. I share some of the most important lessons I've learned through these podcasts and ones also that I've put into practice in my own life. Anyway, that's it for now. Until next time, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.